Okay, so as we said last time, we're going to talk about that. I collected, I, I, these are not all um, from one text. I collected together with cutting and pasting uh, <clears throat> selections of, uh, of Agadot about Og from a few different sources. One is from Midrash Rabbah, one is from Masechet Nida, one is from Masechet Bachot. Obviously, that's not exhaustive. There's a lot of other places where Og is spoken about, but essentially, he makes an appearance in... Uh, in a couple of different connections. Um, and the most, the most interesting from the perspective of Midrash, and as we were talking about last time in terms of understanding what the methodology of the Midrash is, <clears throat> from the Midrashic perspective, the most interesting, uh, the most interesting uh, depictions of Og are of course the ones that are the most difficult to take in a historical sense, right? That's what attracts us from the Midrashic perspective. Now, where does Og actually appear in the Torah? He actually appears in the story of Milchemet Sichon Ve'og. When Am Yisrael is coming into the area of Sichon Ve'og, and there's a war, and Sichon and Og attack uh, the Jewish people, and of course, they are defeated, and <clears throat> Hashem has to tell Moshe Rabbeinu not to be afraid of Og, because he was this very imposing... Uh, and, and very intimidating person and very large. The Torah says he was very large, okay? And that he dominated that entire area. So there's no question that he was a strong man and a very, uh, very big, both in the political sense and in the physical sense, because the Torah actually describes him that way. If you open up the Chumash, it talks about the size of his bed, it was very large. And he was. Chumash talks about it. The Chumash says that he was very, very large, meaning physically his stature was large. But he was also like kind of a tyrant, meaning he had conquered all of that area from, this is one of the big chidushim, that why were the Jewish people allowed to take that area? They weren't allowed to take the land of Moab and Ammon. So why were they allowed to take that land? Because Sichon and Og had conquered that land and taken it away from the original owners, so to speak. So therefore, the Jewish people were allowed to take it because they weren't taking it directly from Moab and Ammon. It was already uh, conquered territory in the hands of Og and Sichon. That's a, that's, and that was the whole discussion between Yiftach and, uh, uh, and, um, you know, and the king of Ammon in Sefer uh, Shoftim, right? Much, much later. But the, uh, when they relitigate the whole issue of who does this land really belong to, and hey, we didn't really take it from you, we, take, we, took, it from, uh, we took it from Og and Sichon, not from you, so don't c- come after us now, hundreds of years later, to try to get your, uh, your territory back. Um, so, but the point is, the Torah does describe Og as being very, very physically large, and also very powerful, intimidating, like undefeated on the battlefield, and... Uh, and someone who uh, struck fear into the hearts of anybody who would think to stand up against them. Let's put it that way, right? And obviously had done a quite effective job of conquering territory of well-established nations, you know, in, in, in that region. So that we know about Og. So where does the Midrashic narrative about Og come in? And this is what interests us as students of Midrash who are trying to understand the methodology that Midrash uses to illuminate the text, Okay. So, from our perspective, we want to understand... Actually, could you do me a favor and bring a chumash? Yeah. Just so I don't have to say everything by heart and make, possibly make a mistake. Yeah, but yeah, if you could. Thank you so much. Um, so, from the perspective of Midrash, the interesting thing is where a person is uh, described as living at a time that they don't belong, historically. Like, let's say, for instance, 800 years earlier than they would typically be alive. So... This is what the Midrash does. The Midrash 
gives Og an extraordinarily long lifespan. Now, obviously, he perishes on the battlefield in the, uh, you know, in the fight with the Jewish people that's described in, in the Chumash. He dies. But he lives, according to the Midrash, he lives all the way from the times of Noah. Okay? Now, yeah, now where do the rabbis, where do the rabbis get this idea? So they don't actually bring Og into the story of Noah directly, but they first introduce him into the story of Avraham Avinu. And then they back, they trace him back all the way to... Eliezer, no? uh, what? Is Eliezer? No, no, no. Wait, when... when there is? I, but that, that one, I, that one is, is, is beyond my pay grade. I don't know about that. Okay? The one that... The one, the familiar one, the classic one, okay, is where it says that Avraham is, is sitting, minding his own business when he is informed of a war going on between four kings and five kings. The four kings and five kings, we know that these four kings, really the four kings were like superpowers and the five kings were kind of like, almost like governors of large cities. They weren't really kings like in the way that we think. So the five kings were dominated by the four kings for a long time. And then the five kings rebel against the four kings and the four kings put down the rebellion and they do quite an effective job of putting down the rebellion. And um, in the course of all of that, Lot is captured by the four kings because he was living in Sodom and Sodom is one of the five kings, right? It's one of the five kingdoms that <laughs> rebelled and was conquered. Now, apparently, Avram Avinu wasn't really following or wasn't really interested very much in the regional intrigue and conflicts. He was set apart from that. That wasn't something that he was going to get involved in. However, when he's told by a random person, and it, this is in Aperek Yud Dalet in Breshit, Pasuk Yud Gimel, Vayavoa Palit, the refugee, actually, it would be called, right? The refugee comes and he tells Avram the Ivri. Avram the, the Ivri literally actually means somebody who is a descendant of Ever and Shem. But midrashically, again, Ivri refers to the idea that he was different. He was on the other side of the world from everyone else. Right? That's how the Midrash always interprets the term Ivri. He was, he was doing, minding his own business, essentially. But as soon as he finds out in Pasuk Yudalit that his nephew Lot has been captured, so he decides to muster his troops or his, you know, his disciples, whatever it might be, and they go out to war and they actually vanquish the four kings, uh, you know, against all odds. And he's able to restore the property and the liberty of the five kings to them and also free his nephew so this is the basic story. Now, if you're reading the story, there's no indication that Og is involved here or anyone else. We know that a palit, somebody palit means to survive or to be a refugee from some kind of a disaster situation, right? Some kind of a calamitous situation. So uh, a pleta, like the, the pleta are the people who, like the remnant, the people who survive. So... You would think that that just means that somebody ran from the battlefield. Yeah, if, we, if there's a way to close that, we could. Um, that ran from the battlefield, escaped from the battlefield, and brought this news to Avram. That's the pshat, right? Simple reading. What do Chazal say about this palit? Actually, Rashi even says, Right? Okay, that's very generous in calling that the pshuto. 
Okay? But, right? It's right. It's a Midrash. So he says this, but the reason why Rashi is saying it's Pshat, I think, is because it says Hapalit. It's saying the refugee, like the person that we know as a refugee, the known person. Right? And a little bit further on, he says, this is Og who lived, who survived the Mabul. Okay? So this adds yet another layer. So we already have the fact that Og is alive at the time of Avraham Avinu, hundreds of years before he faces Moshe Rabbeinu on the battlefield is itself a surprise. But now you're telling me that not only that, but actually he lived going all the way back to the time of the Mabul, which is hundreds of years prior. Okay? And not only that, but even though the Torah tells you that literally everyone died in the Mabul, all humans and all animals, except as who were protected inside the Teva, they were the people that, that actually were in Teva Noach, nevertheless, Og managed to grab onto the outside of the uh, Teva and, and survive. Okay? Contrary. So, in so many ways, this Midrash is crying out to us for some kind of explanation. And as I mentioned in the first class, the method of the Midrash that, and I think the genius of the Midrash, is that it purposely and deliberately offers us imagery that is contrary to what I would call our common sense or our intuition about what the pshat could possibly mean. Nobody reading the Pshat would ever assume that Og is even alive at this time, knowing that he lives in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu hundreds of years afterwards. Nobody would assume that Og is even alive at this time. Okay? Let alone that he was alive at the time of Noach. Let alone that he survived the Mabul. Okay? All of these things fly in the face of our reading of the Pshat. Some more than others. Some more obviously than others. I think really, aside from the very, very long lifespan, some people do have very long lifespans in the Torah, but the fact that Og could survive the Mabul of all of the things sounds like the most absurd because the Torah literally says everyone died. And now you're telling me, no, 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 everyone didn't die. <clears throat> Actually, he, somebody lived. That's, so there are so many aspects of the uh, story of the Midrash that a person who's seeking the pshat or a person who's approaching the text with a, with a common sense, uh, from a common sense perspective is going to say this doesn't make, this doesn't fit, this doesn't work, right? Now, one approach is to say, okay, so therefore I'm going to set it aside and say this is not the pshat and it doesn't have anything to teach me and the rabbis were just indulging in, you know, fairy tales and telling stories to entertain us in their free time and really it doesn't have anything substantive to add to our understanding of the text. That's what many people do. Many people will dismiss it and say, this is not for me, this is not really, this is not really an interpretation of the text. This is uh, imaginative literature, okay? This doesn't have anything to do with text. Another person will say, no, it's literally true. There was a guy hanging on to the outside of the ark for a full year, by the way, because the mabul was a year, right? If you read when it started, where it ended, it was a full year, Full solar year, not a Torah, not a year of the of the Chodeshim of the Torah, a, a full solar year, okay, that somebody was hanging on, there was no food, and according to other Midrashim, the water was also boiling. Boiling. Right. <laughs> but he managed, he was the, you know, he managed to survive. It was even 
better than than the job that Tom Hanks did in that movie when he was on that island, you know? Right. Because at least he had food and he was on dry land. Okay? <clears throat> it was unbelievable. So, a person will take it literally. How can you say that Chazal are not telling the truth? This is the tradition. Og was alive all these years and Og survived the Mabul. And for some reason, he was a Baal Chesed. He wanted to inform Avram of what was going on in the war over there. Oh, it's, it is Pirkei uh, the Eliezer. It has that it was Eliezer? It's Eliezer because he helped Avraham during a battle uh, to, to rescue Lot. Oh. So they, they have to look into that power to... Okay, so let's come back to... That's definitely not the line that this Midrash is going on. This Midrash is going on a different line. How do I know? Because you're going to see. The Midrash Rabbah doesn't go with that approach. Okay? Midrashim can have different... Different approaches, different angles. So this, and, and that's okay. They can have machloket between midrashim. And sometimes the machloket is, they're basically saying different ways of saying the same sort of general approach to the text. And other times there can be fundamentally different approaches to the text. And both of them are okay. I'm just going with what the Gemara takes and what the Midrash Rabbah takes, okay? <clears throat> what does Rish Lakish say? He says, and this is from Midrash Rabbah and Breshit, B'Shem Bar Kapra, U'ogu Palit. Og is the palit. <coughs> Why was he called Og? He was he was making uh, he was making bread. Okay. Og was not looking to help Avram. He was a bad actor. What does that mean? <coughs> it means that Avram is a very like uh, vengeful type of guy. You know. So I, I'm going I'm to get him riled up about that. I'm going to tell him your nephew was kidnapped. And what's he going to do? He's going to go fight. And then he's going to be killed. And I'm going to take his wife. Okay? So this is really an amazing story. This sounds like a great movie. This, this could be a, this sounds like a movie script. Okay? You'll get Sakhar. Hashem said to, to Og, you're going to get reward for this. Shad So you see that the rabbis were sensitive to the fact that he lived way too long, right? So you're going to live a very, very long time because you came and helped Avram. But because you wanted to kill Avram, because you wanted to kill him, you're going to see tens of thousands, millions, whatever, of his descendants. And you are going to die by the hands of these Jews that you wanted to kill Avraham Avinu. Okay? That is the, uh, uh, that's the Midrash in Midrash Rabbah. Okay? Now, in, um, in the next segment that I put here, I put a little bit too much actually, we, we didn't need, but um, that where it says, Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Amar Rabbi Yochai, Right, why was it, because the question in the Midrash, the question that the uh, that Masechet Nida is dealing with is why Hashem had to tell Moshe to be afraid of Og. Not to be afraid of Og, meaning why, did, why would he be afraid of Og that he would have to be told not to be afraid? And the answer that was given is because he knew that he had the Sakhar of this mitzvah that he did in helping Avraham Avi. Right? Okay. And then last but not least, we have the ending of Og in the Midrash. We're going to put all these different pieces of the puzzle together. So I bet, but let, they, let's take a look. The ending is maybe a little bit better known. Um, that, then this is from a Sechet Bachot because it talks about the Avnei El Gabish, somebody who sees the rock, and they can say the Bachan, this special rock. Nobody knows what this Avnei El Gabish is. So it says, "This is Evan Shebikesh Og Melech Abajan Israel." This is talking about the stone that Og 
wanted to throw on the Jewish people. That it's a tradition that he saw the size of the uh, camp of the Jews. He went and he picked up a mountain that was the size of the Jewish camp. Okay? And he lifted it up in order to kill all of them. That was his goal. That's what he wanted to do. The only thing was that his hand slipped, you know, where Hashem caused it to, uh, you know, to break, to crack, whatever it was. All right? And it fell onto his neck. Okay, Hashem brought, you know, somehow made it that it, that it broke open and, uh, and, and, and it fell onto his neck. He wanted to pull it off, but his teeth extended and held it on. So he couldn't get it off. And then, of course, we know the end of the story is that Moshe Rabbeinu, even though Moshe Rabbeinu was only 10 amot tall and Og was uh, much taller than that, he was able to jump up and hit Og's ankle and he kept hitting it until Og died. Amazing story. Moshe. Moshe. So, this story is, a, is an amazing story. It sounds very fanciful. It sounds, you know, uh, uh, very, you know, from, an, uh, uh, from the perspective of imagination, you can see why kids would hear the story and be like, wow, that's amazing. I mean, Olga is picking up this big thing and Hashem brought whatever creature that broke, broke open the rocks and it, the rock fell on his head and then his teeth come out. He has huge buck teeth and then the Moshe Rabbeinu just has to hit his ankle and he kills him. It's amazing. Okay, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great story. But what is the, what are all these Midrashim trying to get at? What is bothering them? Or what do they, what are they trying to illustrate or to teach us um, by using this depiction of Og? Because we have to approach the text and assume that, again, we have one of two paths in front of us. We have three paths in front of us. Path number one is just say the rabbis were really having a great time telling tall tales for our entertainment, but that doesn't fit with how they speak so highly of the Agadot as being so meaningful and what Chazal say about it. We could say this is all literal and this is like just literally what happened and if you don't want to believe it, it's because you don't have enough emunah and that's another way. Or, what? Right, you're not big and there's plenty of people who say that. And then there's the middle path, which is really the path that our Chachamim actually take. Like the Rambam talks about taking the Rajbah explain some of these agadot also. Actually, I was very sad because I saw the Ralbag says, I explained the Midrash of Og in my Pirush and Masechet Bachot that we don't have. I was so upset when I saw that. I'm like, uh, it's like I, I explained it. But even like some of the, some of the late Rishonim who talk about this, like for example, in the Sefer Kedat Yitzchak, um, who sometimes interprets the Midrashim, explains some of them. He says it obviously doesn't mean he was physically so tall or that Moshe Rabbeinu was physically so tall. That's not the idea. The idea was in some psychological or spiritual sense. Like, this is how the actual Chachamim understood these stories. Okay? So what is going on with this? Now let's take a step back. Let's figure out what do the rabbis mean, first of all. What could the rabbis mean when they talk about Og living and surviving the Mabul. That crazy image that they put in your head of this giant guy hanging on to the ark and surviving the Mabul for that year. What are they really trying to say? And then why would they connect him also to Avram Avinu? What do those two things have in common? Okay? We, all we know from the Chumash about Og is that he was a very powerful and maybe overwhelmingly powerful tyrant in the times of Moshe Rabbeinu. That's it. Where are the, what are the rabbis trying to say with all of these other uh, links to Og? 
So let's first go back to the, the Mabul. What is the significance, really? And I think this is something I've talked about in other Shilohim, too. You've probably heard this part before in some form. But uh, what is really the significance of pre-Mabul versus post-Mabul? So we tend to just think of it as, well, there was a disaster and the world started over again. But that's not really the, the underlying significance, the ultimate significance of the transition of pre-Mabul to post-Mabul. There was something much, much more fundamental. Ideology. No? Yeah, what was the difference in the ideology after the Mabul versus before? One was anarchy and one was uh, like um, socialism, I guess. You could one was like Lord of the Flies type of situation. Basically, it was like chaotic, anarchy, every man for himself. That's what it says. They just took whatever wife they wanted. It was Hamas. Hamas meaning violence, ruled by the strong over the weak. No law, no order, no actual civilization. There's no evidence of civilization in the time pre-Mabu. There's no cities. There's no villages. There's, no, um, there's nothing beside, beyond families. Right? All that you see, even the one city that it says that, you know, is, is a city of, uh, uh, you know, of a, uh, from Cain's uh, descendants, that is basically his family. Like, you don't really have an idea of civilization. There's no idea of law. There's no idea of government. There's no idea of society. It's every man for himself, and that's why he talks about how the powerful dominated the weak. People took whatever wives they wanted, they took whatever money they wanted, they took whatever property they wanted. And if you were a weak person, like, it's just a situation of, like, you are at the mercy of, it's like uh, complete chaos. Like, imagine being in one of these, you know, in a situation, there are probably places like that even today, I'm sure, where, like, there really is no rule of law and gang, you know, gangs dominate or, you know, whoever has the, whoever has the guns, on, whatever it is. That's how it was pre-Mabul. That's why it's been a Noah, right? right? So that's why Noah also is compared in many ways to Moshe Rabbeinu. He's also in a Teva, just like Moshe Rabbeinu. And, ha- and, and, and the 40 days of the rain, and the 40 days that Moshe Rabbeinu is on the mountain, right? Okay? Also, These things are... are to 120 <clears throat> and Moshe was to 120. Who? Meaning, it says that the humans... Right, they had 120 years, yeah. So, so there's right, there's, there's a lot of connections. And when, 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 when Noah comes out... He is given laws, and he's, he, what, the major law he's given is about murder, actually. That, you know, somebody who commits murder, they have to be executed, which is the basis of, basically, the idea of the sanctity of life. But the, the whole idea of God giving a commandment that, a, that, that human beings should judge one another, basically. That means that there's going to be some kind of law and order now. Some kind of a system. For adjudication. It's not just going to be uh, the powerful dominating the weak. And if you, if you think about it, this explains why. How can Noah be given an impossible promise? Because Hashem promises Noah, never again will I bring a mabul to the earth. How could that be just? If humanity deserved to be wiped out before because they were so wicked, how can you promise never to do it again? So then how is it fair the first time? So what's the answer? The Ralbag actually more or less explains it. He does, in, in, you know, in, in, not exactly these words, but he essentially, essentially explains it, that once you have society, there's a limit 
to how low human beings can fall. Because there's some kind of a framework to prevent us from descending to total chaos. Even if you have a Hitler rise up, okay? Still, there's going to be enough to push back that people are going to say that's wrong. People are, that's not acceptable, right? There's, there's never going to be a full descent into absolute anarchy, Lord of the Flies style situation ever again because Noah is starting. He basically is the founder, not of humanity, because Adam was the father of humanity, but Noah is the father of civilization. Which is why the Torah had to be given generations later. Yeah, much later. There had to be a first law to kind of fail. And then you mentioned this once, how the Torah had to be given after like the Shavuot of Noah, because if it was given at, to Adam, for example, right, it wouldn't make sense for, for Adam for also, sure. It, we would fail automatically, and people would say, "Ah, you see, this is." It doesn't. Well, what, it wouldn't work. You you have to have. So what what do you notice? What happens in Parshat Noah after the Mabul? All the different countries that emerge, all the different cultures that emerge, all the different languages that emerge, all the different basically civilization as we know it is described. First, they try Migdal Bavel, which is the idea of collectivism, which is the opposite of what they had before the Mabul. Instead of every individual for him or herself, it was let's all, let's bank on our strength by consolidating our strength, like a communist kind of an idea, that the state will be, will wield the power. But that stifled the individual so much that that didn't work either. That breaks apart into a balance between the two. There's a balance between individuality and collectivism, like there is in any society. Any society is a balance between public, the public good and the, and, and the individual good. The right of the states, right? The right of the community, basically the rights of the community and the interests of the community, and the balancing that with the rights and interests of the individual and how different societies negotiate that balance is a lot of what distinguishes, let's say, a socialist uh, society from a democratic society. And you have variation in that. You have European-style democracy, which is not quite as free as American-style democracy. It's not quite as heavy on the independence of the individual. It has a little bit more in the hands of the state. And then you have have countries where it's totally in the hands of the state. So, but the idea, but even there, there's a, at least a pretense of caring about the individual. Right? But the idea of having a structure and having a, a sense of civilization beyond the individual, above the individual, to keep the individual in check so that the instincts, let's say, of that, in, that person who happens to be really strong, that thug, let's say, your typical thug, who otherwise would be dominating his neighborhood and taking whatever he wanted, what keeps him in check is the rule of law. It's not you. You're not going to be able to fight that guy. If he has his way, he'll just beat you to a pulp and take whatever he wants. You have the law on your side. You have the, and the law is the state. When you, when you go to court, it's the state versus you, right? Even if you get a parking, even if you get a speeding ticket, it's this, the whole state is against you, right? It's the state of New York against you, right? But the idea is that the, the state is what keeps individuals in check, what prevents them from harming one another, what prevents us from descending into chaos. That's the benefit of it. And Sheva Mitzvot of Noach are essentially to keep the fabric of society intact. They're the basic uh, ingredients that you need to keep society intact. Okay? Now, with that in mind, what could it possibly mean, right, to say that a person 
survive the Mabul. The ideology didn't die. What? Exactly. The ideology didn't die. You could still have a person who is a throwback to pre-Mabul mentality. And you do have that sometimes. You have these like, these drug lords, you know? Forget the name of the guy. He, he's always, he was in the news a lot. Uh, yeah, these guys, you know, these guys who basically, they had the police and the government like in their hands. They could do whatever they wanted. They literally broke out of jail in broad daylight. They're, they're th- right there. Their associates come and literally break him out of jail right in broad daylight and he just walks right out. You know, that type of thing is like exactly what, that, that's old, right? Meaning a person that sees society, we all make a kind of a compromise. And we say, okay, I'm willing for the benefits that the security and safety and law-abidingness of society offers me, I'm willing to sacrifice some of my freedoms in order to receive that assurance that I have the framework of society holding things together and preventing chaos. Okay? I'm willing to accept it. And in fact, like Pirkei Avot even says, you should always pray for the Malchut because if it were not for the, if it were not for the Malchut, then people would swallow each other alive. That's what Pirkei Avot says. So for 99% of people, it's a good deal, actually. It's a good deal because for most of us, if whoever was strongest or had the most guns or had the, you know, or who was the biggest or who was the most aggressive, if that person was able to have whatever they wanted and I had to fight them on my own, uh, I would be at a disadvantage. So for most of us, that's good. But for Og, it's not such a good deal. Meaning for the thug himself, it's not such a good deal. <laughs> the thug himself thinks the existence of society is, a, uh, is an impediment because I don't benefit from it. I only lose because I would actually be the person on top. So that drug lord guy, he actually, those, they're northern, there's been more than one of them, right? They, they would be on top. So they have nothing to gain. So that's really like you said, you said it perfectly. The ideology of pre-Mabul still exists. It's just mostly held down by the weight of civilization that we don't allow. And when it starts to show its ugly head, we really try to push it back down again before it gets out of control. That's what we're always trying to do. So in, in that kind of a... Uh, When you think of things that way, so the idea that Og is this kind of a strong man leader, basically, right? And that the Chazal are saying, he typifies what a pre-Mabul type of a person would be. Right, a brute guy, but he's not a total brute, because a total brute is like, I don't know, just like, also not that smart. I assume that Og was an intelligent and capable person as well. The Midrash seems to say that he's like... Yeah, he's no he's fool. Conniving. He's, not like, uh, he's not like Mike Tyson. I mean, right. he's like... Uh, he, you know, he's more like one of these drug lords who they're very smart, they're very calculating, and they, they, are, they have placed themselves above the law, and the law struggles to try to subordinate them, but it's not so easy all the time. Right? That's a pre-Mabul type of a personality. And a lot of movies and films, you know, they depict sort of this kind of evil person who is able to, uh, uh, you know, is able to be above the law. So, um, so is, is Moshe hitting him on the ankle kind of Well, let's get to Moshe last. Let's, let's go in the order, right? So now we come to Avraham. Do you see that, that even the aspect of him hanging on to the ark, it's saying that like, 
the ideology is just thinking more about like a thread a little bit. It's like just it survived. Yeah, it survived. It's not what it, being outside the ark and hanging on is basically saying that's not the core of what emerged after the mabul. Like like, right, there. but it's yeah. still there. Yeah. Right? So, like, it didn't get eliminated. Just like you could defeat somebody and you can defeat Nazis in a war. That doesn't mean all the anti Semites in Europe all of a sudden love Jews. Right? An ideology doesn't die as quickly as the people who, uh, who fought for the ideology. Right? It's still because it comes from human nature. Right? So, if you. Uh, so, so, when you come to uh, the next story, so let's, you, let's attempt, let's see. I think that idea is a very, very appealing idea. It really resonates. The idea resonates. So once you have that idea, let's look at the story of Avram. Now, the next thing that the rabbis say is that Og was interested in interacting with Avram Avinu. Now, in the really, uh, you know, in the developed story, in the fully fleshed out story where he actually wants to kill Avram or see Avram die and take Sarah. Okay, but let's try to first understand what linkage, just like we saw last time, Right, that that means that there's some link between these characters. We're trying that there must be some connection that the that the Chazal are seeing. Why would they bring Og into a story? We see why they brought Og into a story about Noah, because Noah is the uh, you know is is ushering in a new era of humanity, right? And he is the holdover from the old uh, from the old uh, you know uh, mentality. What about Og and Avram? Is there anything that we could see why Og and Avram would have an interaction? Okay, so I think there's I think that's part of the answer that, that there's a diff it's one is to show contrast. But I think there might also be something else. Well there's a clue in there that talks about wanting to take Sarah. Right. And that happened to him twice or did that. Yeah, that's true. So it's saying that this that group mentality because in the time of Noah, men were just taking women. Right. Oh, uh, that's true too. You know, for that's a good point. Force. Right. So it's another example that that elaboration of the midrash about him wanting to take Sarah is definitely an echo of the idea of him being a prima bulga. Right. Right. But is there anything else? He must have been a thug in one of these uh, cities. <laughs> yeah. And everybody else was dying in the. Maybe he, right, he ran, ran, away. Away. ran away. Right, but why to Avram of all people? Because Avram's the Ivri. It seems like it's suggesting he's the opponent to that ideology. Right. So, to which ideology? To, to Oaks? Anarchist. So I, I think I, I, I agree with you partially. Also right. Exactly. What is, See, that's that's what I think it is. I think I think it's that that Avram is also a person who didn't who left society. He's also a counterculture person. Right? He does, so if the idea of Og is that he resisted the idea of civilization or society, so he's a holdover to pre-civilization times, right? Mm. To, the, to the dawn of time where the good old days, where the strong men did whatever they want, that we never, you know, like whatever he would think, right? So, that, so he's a holdover to the good old days, what he considers the golden age. He sees another person like that. Oh, Avraham. He's another person who kicked to the side all this civilization nonsense and all this society thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's my, he's my brother. Okay, now, now I think there's a limit to that, but I think that that is, in other words, that's the commonality that they have. The commonality between Avraham and Og is that they are both counterculture, meaning they're both resistors in the framework of civilization. They both resist. They're both against civilization. But not obviously not for the same reason, right? That was what you were pointing out. Not for the same reason, but hold on to that idea. So, in the mentality of Og, 
How would Og perceive a person like Avraham then? Exactly. Avra, because Og can only see a fellow, another strong man is, a, is, a, is either a brother or a more likely a rival or a threat. Right? It actually now makes sense why they were yeah. connecting to Eliezer. Because Eliezer, the, the, when, he goes, when he gets sent to find a wife. Right, that's the, I was thinking something yeah. along that too. I didn't want to stretch us too thin, but I, I, I'm, I'm thinking something like that too. We have to develop that a little bit more. Sit on that a little bit. But in the, um, it, just in this line of thinking, so, so Og, seeing another person who is a like-minded in the sense that they're also setting themselves against civilization. They've also abandoned civilization and see it as, a, as something that holds them back. So Og's immediate assumption is going to be, right, the Midrashic Og, obviously, his assumption is going to be that that person is the same type of person as I am. Now, what would a person like Og look at, a, at the destabilization of the region politically, that there's a war going on, a massive war going on? With, exactly, right? For somebody like Og, that's an opportunity. Things are falling apart. I told you this whole civilization thing is a joke, because look at these people are fighting with each other. I just need to set, step in. I can take advantage of the fact that there, right now there's disarray and everything is destabilized. And like, uh, just like the Arab warlords love to do in every, every country that America tries to become, make a democracy, you know? So they, whenever they come in and try to make a democracy out of these people, so what ends up happening? It becomes destabilized and an even worse warlord type of guy takes over, okay? So that, that's, the, uh, that's, the, 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 that's how Og would view a situation like this. So he figures, oh, Avram, Avram is the same type of a guy. That's what the Midrash is saying. He's a vengeful guy. I'm going to tell him about what's going on in the war, that he has a personal stake in it, he's going to get involved, and he'll, he'll be killed, and I'll be able to take Sarah. But the idea is that he's, he viewed him, he was afraid of Avram to a certain extent because he saw another person who was independent of society. And to him, the only reason why he would be independent of society was because it held back your political, your power, your aspiration for power, your desire for pleasure, because it limits your instinctual freedom. It limits your ego, your, the freedom of your ego to do whatever you want and to take whatever you want. That's, the, that's what society does to the powerful person. It, it, it prevents them from having, the, you know, from fulfilling the dreams they would otherwise fulfill. So he assumes that Avram is going to be just that type of a person. But what is Avram actually? He left society not because it holds him back physically from pursuing material gain or for pursuing instinctual gratification or whatever it was that Og wanted, he left society because it was mentally debilitating to be a part of society because it was intellectually debilitating because the people in the societies that existed at that time were idol worshippers and they didn't recognize the truth and they weren't living according to, in the proper way. So he left not because society prevented him from gratifying his desires, but because society was holding him back from seeking truth and from preaching the truth and teaching it. A totally different reason than why Og would have a problem with society. Maybe the opposite even. Okay? And even the reason why Avram gets involved in the war with Sodom is for a totally different reason. It's to save Lot. That's the only reason he gets involved. 
And why did he save Lot? Because Lot also recognized God. Lot was a student, basically. It wasn't just a biological relationship that it's his nephew. Lot was also a student. And I, 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 and I think very much that Avra, part of the reason why you see that Lot had a sort of a, uh, an aspiration to be a kind of a shliach. He was like a little bit of a, 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 a chabad shliach in, in Sidon. Because he, he, the, the Midrashim say, you know, he became like a leader, right? <laughs> Meaning he wasn't, he wasn't considered a, an ordinary citizen of Sodom. I think that he saw himself, he justified to himself or rationalized to himself. And I think Avram also rationalized that, oh, it's justifiable for him to go there because maybe he'll be able to have an influence. And you do see both before, really once Lot goes to Sodom, but even afterwards that Avram obviously has a vested interest in Sodom. He's continually... Focused on Saddam. He prays for Saddam. He's concerned about the fate of Saddam. And as soon as Saddam is destroyed, he moves. He, he leaves. Because that was his main audience. The people of Saddam were the people that he hoped he was going to be able to teach his, his, his Torah. And, uh, and instead, of, instead of bringing them, in the, that's why it says, right? They were very sinful to God. And what does Rashi say? He says they recognized Hashem, but they rebelled against him. Meaning they were like the student that you don't want to have. You know, the student that you, that you teach and he becomes, the, uh, he, he becomes the rebellious student. Like, you know, like the Darth Vader or, the, uh, or what was the name of the bad guy in Kung Fu Panda? You know, the, the, you know, the one that you, that you bring up as your disciple and then he becomes corrupt, but he has, the, he has the power of the knowledge that you gave him, but he misuses it, right? So that was like, that was what happened with the people of Sodom, basically. Now, if you, so looking at it that way, why does Avram get involved? Totally the opposite of what Og would want to get involved. Because what does Avram do? He doesn't take one penny. He doesn't want to take one inch of land. He takes nothing. He takes no advantage of the situation except to try to teach the priest Malki Tzedek and to teach Melech Sodom about God. That's all he does at the gathering after the war. And he doesn't take one penny. Right? So, it's, so in a way, the idea of Og coming to entice Avram, first of all, highlights the commonality between Avram and Og. Both of them opponents of, this, of, of society, meaning both of them standing apart from society. But one of them standing apart from society and waiting for an opportunity to reassert dominance so that he can bring things back to the good old days. Make Mesopotamia great again. You know, in the Og style, right? Or, or you have Avram Avinu who is like, no, the reason I'm against society is not because I want to dominate more. It's because I want truth to come to light and it's holding people back from recognizing the truth. Like, why is North Korea an evil country? Is it an evil country because it restricts people's freedoms physically? That is part of it. I mean, that is, it is bad. But it doesn't allow them mental freedom. It doesn't allow them intellectual freedom. It doesn't allow them exposure to, to reality. Their people are brainwashed. And in, that's, from Avraham Avinu's perspective, that would be a far worse evil. Because they can't think and they can't know truth. Because of the oppression of, of North Korea. Now, that's the difference between Avram and, and, and Oak. They have a commonality. They're both people who stand apart from society. And the Midrash brings that out. And what does the Midrash do by bringing Og into the story? In, 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 bringing Og into the story of the Mabul highlights really what the Mabul signified in terms of the birth of civilization. 
bringing Og into the story of Avram Avinu highlights Avram Avinu's separateness from society and the difference between why he would detach himself from society and why somebody like Og would detach himself from society. And, it, and it's, I think it's beautiful that in this very text is where Avram is called Avram Haivri, which the rabbis also interpret to mean that he was someone who stayed apart from society. See, he probably didn't even know that there was a war going on. He wasn't reading the papers. He definitely wasn't watching, you know, MSNBC. He didn't know what was going on. He didn't care. That wasn't his interest. Okay? So the, until he found out that a person who was a seeker of truth, that he saw Lot as a person who was seeking truth and seeking relationship with God, he was in trouble. Okay, so now I have to get involved to, to save him. Okay? And he gets an opportunity to spread his ideas even further with the gathering of the kings at the, at the conclusion of the conclusion of the battle, right? Where he mentions where Malkitzedek, I don't want to go too far into the story, but Malkitzedek says, oh, uh, blessed is Avram to, uh, to El Elyon. And Avram says, no, I raise my hand to Hashem El Elyon, to teaching them the idea that Hashem is Yudke Vavke, right? Teaching them that, that El Elyon in, in those days was the highest god of the pantheon of the uh, Can- Canaanite gods, you know, El Elyon, among many gods. And, and, and Avram is saying, no, the highest god is actually Yudke Vavke, meaning totally separate. The real god is totally separate from, from this world. So like, he uses it as an opportunity to teach and then he leaves. He went to a battle. To the, Og would never do that. Og would be like, everybody kiss my ring and kiss my feet and I'm the godfather. That's it. Right? He, he, would, have, he would have used this. He would have, maybe he would have gotten involved to beat everybody into submission and then to say, now, I, now I'm the new sheriff in town. That's it. I'm, I'm taking over. Avram doesn't do that. So the fact that they bring Og in and that Og potentially would have seen Avram as a rival. But he actually ends up being the opposite of that. That brings out what Avram was actually about. And the idea that in the Midrash, Hashem says in the future, you're going to see Avram's you know, descendants be so numerous and you are going to fall before them. Now let's get to that last story, the really nice story about picking up the gigantic rock. Now, first of all, that gigantic rock kind of evokes a little bit of the imagery of Har Sinai, right? Mm-hmm. Right, the idea of holding up the Har Sinai over the Jewish people, yeah, right? Yeah, it kind of evokes that. What is the idea of that Midrash and of Og being ridiculously tall, like he like, you know, uh, insanely tall? So even the Chazal, even the Rishonim, I'm saying, even the, the Farshim explain that this is not necessarily that he was literally a giant, that is, you know, he would have to be, you know, a hundred feet tall, but that psychologically he was an intimidating person. It would be like if you saw like one of these huge, I don't know, boxers, like, like I don't know, Evander Holyfield or I don't know who, who's big now, I don't know. Used to be Mike Tyson or Formia, like one of these really big guys. Andre the Giant used to be a lava channel, right? He, you know, somebody like that. You're like, you know, this huge, very built, very strong guy. He was very intimidating is the point. The idea of him being so big is that he was intimidating. And the idea of him picking up, picking up the rock, right? To kill them. And then it falling on his head and Moshe Rabbeinu hitting like his ankle, jumping up and hitting his ankle. So this to me is in a way, is, 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 a, is playing off of another very famous story, which is the story of David and Goliath, where you again have a giant, right? David and Goliath, famous story, right? You have the giant and you have the little guy. The giant has paralyzed the Jewish army paralyzed them. They couldn't, they didn't want to move. 
why this one guy is coming out and talking like what we would call, you know, talk trash talking every day, right? You guys are dogs, you're nothing. Da, 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 da. And every day they, 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 they don't do anything. And then David Melech, who wasn't, it wasn't David Melech, it was David the nobody, kid, comes and says, I'm going to go. I'm going to go talk to him. Well, who is this guy? Who is this guy insulting God? I'm going to go talk to him. And he tries to put on the armor and it doesn't fit, you know? So he goes and he faces him and he insults him back. He's like, you are nothing and you're insulting the living God and I'm going to kill you today. He gets him so angry that Goliath charges at David, this tiny little wimp twerp kid that's, you know, nobody and he's a giant guy. It would be like if you had this seven foot tall wrestler, you know, and you're talking trash to them and you're this uh, four foot tall, little untrained guy. And he chases after him. And what does David do? He just takes out his slingshot and he fires one shot and it's over. But what does that really illustrate to you? It's very scary. The idea of brute aggression is very scary. But one of the things about brute aggression is that eventually it's self-destructive. And a person who is wise is able to wait out the brute aggression to the point that it exposes the vulnerability of the person. And then they'll be able to take advantage of it using wisdom, not, not fighting fire with fire. You're not going to be able to fight fire with fire. So the idea in that Midrash, the way that I would interpret it, is that Og approached the situation with, you know, full blast, basically. Full blast attack. Thinking this is going to be a piece of cake. And the idea of wanting to drop a rock on them is like the equivalent of basically wanting to pulverize them, you know? Destroy it with, with the most brute force form you possibly could. The Midrash is using this image of just dropping a rock. He looked at the size of the camp and he's just going to drop a rock on them and they're going to be flattened. Like, that sort of a thing. The same thing as Goliath is thinking. And what happens? It cracks and falls on his own head. And his teeth come and pin it to him. Which means that the very bruteness and in pure instinctuality and pure aggression and violence of Og causes his own demise. See? Ends up revealing his vulnerability and weakness and then all Moshe Rabbeinu has to do is jump up and hit his ankle see until he's able to bring him down but that's how it always works it, it, you know it's a uh, it's like uh, you can have yeah, I'm using too many uh, old movie references maybe but yeah, I, I can think of at least a couple of them like one is you know if you're going back to like Star Wars uh, reference you know the Death Star all they have to do is drop that one little you know one little bomb, one little spot in the whole thing, the gigantic nest is the size of a planet, it's gone. You know? It's like, sometimes that's, sometimes that's what happens. People be, who charge ahead, people who are driven by a kind of a, a sense that victory is guaranteed to them and they just need to charge ahead unthinkingly, place themselves at a disadvantage. The, 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 the example that always stuck in my mind, I know this is a real, this is going even lower brow, movie-wise, but you remember Rocky, right? So if you remember, the, in one of the Rockies, he fights Mr. T. Yes. Remember Mr. T? So Mr. T, Mr. T is like, is like Og. 
right? He's big, a big, big right? He's big and strong, and he's like an animal, you know? Like, he's like, really like, he has this, that's the persona, Clubber Lang, he was called in the movie, right? He's like, uh, he's like, the, the, just like all out, like pure instinct type of guy, all muscle, and seems like unbeatable, even, he, you know, he's like, uh, practically a killer, right? What happens with, uh, with Rocky? So Rocky, in order to beat him, he basically doesn't do anything. If you remember, he just keeps, he blo- keeps letting, he, he keeps go. He lets him keep punching. He lets him keep punching. He keeps blocking him, uh, you know, trying to avoid the punches as much as he can. Blocking, block, blocking, and they're like, what are you doing? What are you waiting for? You got to hit him already. Right? But he realized that he capitalized, like Mr. T character capitalized on the idea that it's going to be a, I can pour all my energy in and in three minutes I'm going to win. Right? So he just attacked him with pure instinctual energy. Really pure aggressive energy. Because of intimidation. Right. Like he got into his because he's overwhelmed. Maybe he's, he's, he overwhelms with this idea. I'm like, I'm like an animal. He's like, yeah. that was his whole thing. He's like an animal. It's overwhelming. It's scary to see a person like that who seems like they have no limits. Right? And they're pure aggression and they're looking at you and you're like, you feel overwhelmed. Right? So psychologically, you can really, uh, you know, you can really. Uh, debilitate the other person like that. So this, when they finally met for the last time, so Rocky realizes that I just need to let this guy dig his own pit, basically. He let him get all that energy and steam out. He was only good for the short term with that. Once he weakened him and he tired him out, he was able to take him down. And like when I think of Og, that's basically what happens that's basically what the Chazal, I think, are saying with the story of the rock, meaning that Og was looking for this, I'm going I'm gonna to do, do, do a clever lang. It's going to take me five minutes. I'm going to overwhelm them, you know, bombard them, and destroy them, and it's going to be a quick thing. Instead, that approach, that heavy-handed approach, without, really, without much calculation, without strategy, the brute approach, ends up, putting him at a disadvantage and the, and the, and the approach of chokhmah, the approach of strategy, the approach of intelligence, that's the approach that ends up winning. And that's the idea of Moshe Rabbeinu being ten amotai. Actually, the, 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 the Mepharshim, they say that also. They say that ten amot means spiritually, right? He reached up to his ankle physically, but spiritually he's also ten amot tall, which means he's pretty tall, like 15 feet tall, right? He's still pretty tall, especially for a Jewish person. Uh, so he, the, the point is that mentally he was very tall, meaning he was using intelligence. If you're using intelligence, you don't have to necessarily be able to meet the guy face to face. Sometimes you can, under, you can undercut them from below. It doesn't matter. It, when you're using strategy, you don't care that much how you end up accomplishing the goal. And that's why the... Um, it's kind of like the Achilles heel. Exactly. The Achilles heel is a perfect example. And I, and I wonder if that image even was something that the Chazal sure were thinking of. Yeah, I'm sure they, they knew of the story. I'm sure or, they knew of that story. Or maybe that. Yeah. Uh. What's the idea then in the first Midrash, which is that parallel in the one in from, uh, from uh, Nidam, it talks about that David gets blessed as many years and then Moshe is ultimately scared to go to war with them. And we said, right. because, uh, because he know he has this, this, this hoods of uh, having told. So what's that? Has that been to the storyline that we're describing? It's a good question. I'm not sure... Um, because the point is that he, his kavanah wasn't positive, right? So what the, I think really what the, um, what the uh, Chazal are trying to get at is that there's something 
there is, a po- there is something to be praised in a person who is not a slave to society. There is something to be praised and to be seen as a, as a strength in someone who is able to put some space between themselves and what society tells them, what culture imposes upon them, and they're able to be independent. There's, there's a greatness to that. And the fact that Og had that kind of a spirit to him and had that kind of ability to stand apart, and he didn't need the reassurance that most of us need of being part of civilization, part of society, in order to function. That was a zechut on his part. That, and, and so he could have hypothetically been someone who would learn something from Avraham. But what happens when, a, when you wed that independent spirit with corrupt values? You end up getting og melech habasham. Right? That's, in other words, the, it, it, it's great when it's, when it's combined with the truth. Because then it creates Am Yisrael. And that's why Hashem is saying, you're going to end up seeing the birth of Am Yisrael. This is what happens when somebody breaks away from society, but their goal is to seek the truth. And they end up creating a new kind of society, a society that's society of wisdom. But Og's type of, uh, the product of Og is a, uh, a society of violence and a society of, you know, where, uh, which, is, which essentially serves to gratify himself. Better yet, it's that Og is aiming, by removing himself from society, he's aiming for the dissolving of society, whereas Avraham is pulling back from society for the sake of improving society. Right, he doesn't, right, he doesn't mind, the ben- he doesn't mind, Og doesn't mind taking advantage of, uh, of the collective as long as he's the person who, as long as he's the dictator, as long as he's the person who has the upper hand. Right, he doesn't mind taking the benefit. He doesn't want to be a citizen. And is there yeah. any connection with this? Is this is it the, is it Olga who in the midrash is a descendant of like a fallen angel in early on? The, well, it's not. It, it talks about the nephilim. I mean, uh, if that means fallen angels is not so clear in in Chazal's interpretation that that's what that means. That's like more of a uh, yeah. That's like a like a Gnostic and Christian interpretation. In fact, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says in the Midrash, anybody who says that Bnei Elohim means the sons of God is, uh, you know, is a kofer. The Dat Mikra brings it as a... I mean, to take that literally, that must be the case. Well, yeah, you can't take it But the idea is that they had, like the way that the Ramban interprets Bnei Elohim is that they basically bred themselves to be giants. Like they would purposely choose mates that would, that had the qualities of uh, the, you know, all the physical qualities. That, that's why they were taking the women that they wanted, meaning they were taking women who would perpetuate their physical qualities and, uh, and breed a race of, you know, genetically superior beings. Maybe it's like the feeling is like they sort of like fell onto society. Like, Could like, be something like that or they cast themselves. But they they, they, like... another, another interpretation that Ramban has is that the Ramban says in... Uh, that the reason why, why were the Jews so, why were the Raglim so afraid when they saw the giants in Eretz Israel? So, so the Ramban says, because he, he essentially, it's like a, Darwin, a, a Darwinism uh, concept, because he says, because he saw that there were giants, that must mean that like survival of the fittest, only the giants <coughs> were able to make it there because it's such a bad it's, such a, it's an environment that's so difficult that only the, survive, only the fittest could survive. Or what I was going to say is what mm-hmm. maybe made them the fittest in light of everything we're talking about with like Og's height being a mentality thing, mm-hmm. what you said about the Nephilim a moment mm-hmm. ago, is that maybe the way that they're perceiving these people as giants, as it says 
moments after they talk about seeing the giants and saying, and we were grasshoppers in our own right, lives, in our own and lives, right. so we were. It was psychological. I mean, I don't think that it's untrue that they were actually big. I think that, but bigness, the way we perceive somebody as big who seems aggressive and violent and brutish. Uh, is, is different than the way we perceive the same, a person of the same physical size, but they're warm and cuddly and friendly. It's a, it's, it's a lot of it is psychological. <laughs> a lot of it is it's not just physical, the idea of the stature. So, so for sure. So I think that the idea in Og, uh, what the Midrash brings out is this concept of the pure instinct or the pure... Um, the uncivilized quality, you could say, of Og, so to speak, versus the uncivilized characteristic of Avraham Avinu. In one case, being in order to benefit humanity, like you said, but, you know, it, because society was an impediment to this search for truth, as opposed to because the society is an impediment to my search for power, which is a totally different mentality, and that in the end, the clash between the civilization that represents Avraham Avinu, which is Moshe Rabbeinu, and on one side, and I think this is ultimately, ultimately the chidush of the Og Midrashim, is really explaining the place where Og actually appears in the Torah. Mm-hmm. That this clash between the society, which is the brainchild and the physical child of Avraham Avinu. Well, the lawgiver. Right? He's the lawgiver. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the... The ultimate, the ultimate, let's say, fulfillment of Avram Avinu's purpose in terms of creating a society which is Mamlechet Kohanim Vegoi Kadosh on one side versus the kind of a group. I don't want to even want to call it a civilization, but you know, the kind of an organization that would be created by somebody like Oak, okay, which is basically a band of people who think the same way he does or who are instruments to him fulfilling his own, you know, gratifying his own uh, dream. Yeah, like a sort of a godfather or a sort of a, uh, a drug lord type of a leader, okay? So the clash between these two civilizations is a clash between a, civil, a, a group that relies on physical force alone to dominate in its pursuit of, uh, you know, self, selfish gratification versus a nation that is seeking to spread wisdom and knowledge of God and therefore also approaches battle using strategy and intelligence. And even in the story of Avraham Avinu, like, and I've mentioned many times in Tanakh, oftentimes the Jews attack at night. Very often in Tanakh. And, uh, and, I, and I think that's, a, that's like almost a signature feature of like, Tanakh battles, that the battles take place at night. And one of the reasons for that is because a battle at night offers no glory. If you're thinking of the purpose of the battle as glory and honor, so then you're not going to be satisfied with a battle at night. Okay, so you won, but you didn't win. It wasn't a clean fight. It wasn't a, it didn't demonstrate your, your superior prowess and your strength on the battlefield because you used dirty tricks. You came at night, you know, right? You won, but you won in a way that was using uh, strategy and trickery and it wasn't really a, it wasn't because you were the most powerful uh, army. So a Jewish person says, frankly, I don't really care. I just care that you, you know, that we won. 
And that's the idea of the battles at night. Meaning, when, when military action is not taken for the sake of glory, it's only taken for practical reasons. So you don't care if you have no glory. You don't care that you used uh, underhanded tactics to get what you, uh, what you, what you sought after because your, pers- your purpose isn't to demonstrate. Like Og wouldn't be satisfied with that because he needs to demonstrate that he is powerful and you should fear him. That was what, you know, all these kings in, the, in ancient times, the king of Ashur, the king of Babel, all of these kings, they wanted to flex their muscle and show how powerful and how intimidating they could be. Avram doesn't care about that. And in general, the kings of Israel or the leaders of Israel at any given time never cared about that. They used the sneakiest tactics all the time. Right? And, and you know, luring their enemies into a muddy field so they would get stuck, uh, attacking them at night, ambushing them by separating the camp and then let, luring them out of the city. And then all these things that they did are the least glorious ways to win a battle. But they, that wasn't their interest. They just wanted to... And it's, and it's also, it says a lot that we enjoy reading those stories because we're like, wow, that was clever and smart. That's what we appreciate. That they used intelligence and they were clever in what they did. Not the glory of winning through brute force alone. Okay, so that's the, that I think is the, you know, is the theme really of Og versus Noach. Og versus Avram. And ultimately, ultimately, the Midrash is saying, this is all a precursor to Og versus Moshe Rabbeinu. The drug lord, drug cartel leader versus Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay, the person who is about domination and power for his own egotistical and materialistic gratification versus the leader who is seeking to educate and to enlighten and to bring truth to the world and how they approach battle fundamentally differently. And that's why Moshe Rabbeinu is able to defeat Og on the battlefield. Because he's, he uses, he capitalizes on the mentality of Og and his army. And he capitalizes on the strength of intelligence and strategy that the Jewish people had. And that's really how the Midrash is depicting it as, you know, he drops a rock on his head. But essentially it's saying he lost, the, he, he dug his own uh, grave. You know, is essentially what the Midrash is. <coughs> or he put himself in a position Look, many times it happens a lot of times that how Hitler lost. I mean, many very successful leaders, when their egos become too great and they become overly ambitious, they end up destroying themselves. And that's something we're grateful for because we don't want those people to hold on to power for too long. And then, you know, that's the, and I think this is really what the old midrash is about. But any any further thoughts, comments? Don't be shy. Just playing into. Both of you said, both mentioned a little earlier about the, his motive in being approved. He wants to save the woman. He's now in a society format, so the way you play that is you have to be a little more cunning. You don't directly go kill Avram. So you have Avram get killed, so you take his wife. Right. And then, uh, and like you were saying, that the Bracha is saying, there is a marriage in the sense that he's counterculture, and that's meant to uh, persist, it doesn't just go away. But ultimately, the, to be used for the reason. Ultimately, you'll be killed by, meaning by who's going to be the one that defeats you? It's the person that you were scared of, that his descendants were doing it. Meaning, you view him as a competition, there's two routes, there's, which we were describing right. always. There's the route of the pure roots who's breaking society, and then there's the Avon who's going to be, uh, he's breaking away, but it's not, it's too crude society as is. Right. So we're saying, the, the Kalala, then that, his, his punishment is that ultimately, 
your, 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 what you view as ideal is, is going to be subservient to the other version right. of the material. Right, that's a very good point. Right, that's a very good point. In the end, the counterculturalness is a, is, is a tool. Right? It can either be used for good in a way that's really actually beneficial to mankind or in a way that's essentially, you know, is a corruption of, of mankind. And Og represented the use of that strength, let's say potential strength, in the, you know, in the service of evil objectives. And that that's not going to be, that that's going to fall before the... Uh, before the alternative, yeah, exactly. That's I mean, good. Why a fine line between an Avera and Mitzvah? A person yeah. needs the same amount of stuff that he can put it into. Yeah, and courage to a certain. You need courage. All these things, courage, persistence, all these things are. Yeah, it could be a strength, or or if it's put to the wrong end, it becomes a weakness. Yeah, you can be courageous in pursuing an Avera. Yeah. You know, you could be you could be persistent in pursuing something evil. And you can be counterculture, and uh, you know, but really, your ultimate motive is a is a materialistic motive or an egotistical motive, a selfish motive, and that was what Og was. And right, exactly, that eventually, what you're going to build is going to fall before Avraham Avinu. What you wanted to destroy. Why? Why do the rabbis use Og specifically as the vessel for portraying this idea? Why not say like Sihon? Well, because you see that that Moshe Rabbeinu particularly had reason to be afraid of Og, which implies that he was a very, very intimidating person. And the Torah goes to great length to say that he was very big. Right. You know, was, you know that he was a huge guy. He was physically huge, and he was physically huge and very intimidating. And I think that that suggests, you know, this kind of uh, unbridled aggression that was coming at them, like this brute force that was coming at them. And so they, in, you know, that suggests, again, you know, this, this whole backstory. But the backstory is, you know, teaches us so much about the significance of the Mabul, about the significance of Avraham Avinu, about they really... comment on each other. Right, about what the victory of Moshe Rabbeinu over Og really signified. It signified, ultimately, the victory of Avraham Avinu's separation from society as opposed to the separation from, from civilization that would be you know, a person like Og would, would endorse. You know, whether or not he actually really was a person like that, it doesn't even matter. But the kind of a person that he was fits so well with the pre-Mabul culture, fits so well with the kind of person who would see Avram Avinu as a rival. You know, and eventually, yeah, he would have his own, you know, henchmen around him, but it would be for his own selfish purposes. Yeah, so that's, uh, I think it's interesting unpacking the Wall of Midrashim, showing how they link together. And Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you for Thank coming. You,